Tonight we got to begin with a first-hand discovery of impermanence and, and the uncertainty it can bring. <laughs> uh, the world is changing. Welcome to it. <laughs> Tonight's talk is called Living a Life of Dhamma Inquiry. And as I was putting together this talk, I realized on some level it felt like almost the most personal talk I could give. And it's not personal because it's filled with stories, uh, antidotes from my life, personal reflection or um, impressions of life. But it's filled with the question that I hold at the center of my life. How to do this? How to walk this path and to let Dhamma inquiry be at the center of it. How to stay committed to a life that is calling forth truth. How to walk this path that's sometimes feeling like a blundering idiot and at times having a sense of the deepest wisdom come and how to let all of that be pointed in this direction of truth. As I was putting together the talk, there was a couple of people that kept coming to mind. They are two people that, on one level, might appear as quite ordinary people. Ah... And yet, in their presence, I felt an aliveness to this process of being alive and this looking, investigating. The first person that kept coming to mind was the abbess of the nunnery that I was at in Sagain Hills when I ordained as a nun. I spent about six weeks in this nunnery. And the abbess there was named Da Inyeti, but she was commonly called Da Le, which means auntie. She was everybody's auntie. And to me, she didn't speak a lot of English, so it wasn't that in her, um, you know, using precise language, pointing to truth, pointing to Dharma, that I got this sense of living a life of Dharma inquiry. It was really a felt sense that I got from her. She was such a vibrantly alive woman. And, you know, she walked through life looking, learning, listening, engaged with all that she met, and obviously highly respected. You know, whenever we went somewhere, I could see how much people respected her, even though I couldn't understand how they were conversing because I didn't know Burmese and nobody was speaking English. So it was really kind of getting this impression through having to tune into this woman who um, was just so vitally alive. And the other person that kept coming to mind was Sayada Utejaniya, the monk that I recently practiced with in Burma. He um, lived for many years as a layperson, was married, had a child, And 
during that time, he brought the Dhamma to the center of his life. He really embodied a life of investigation, a life of inquiry. And, you know, he's a monk now, but for whatever reasons in his life, that became the right thing to do. But to me, when I was with him, it had nothing to do with the fact that he was a monk, but it was really, for both of these people, almost a sense of the posture they held, where whatever came to them, you know, whether I was a yogi sitting in front of Sayada Utejaniya, whether I was uh, trying to get Do Inyeti or Do Le to understand something of what I needed, it was like they were uh, turning their minds towards Dhamma. I could feel it. You know, reporting to Sayada Utejaniya, he, it was as much his process as mine. You could just see how, you know, listening to me, he was using whatever I said to turn his own mind to a deeper understanding of truth. And, you know, I had this, this sense that, you know, we might talk about something, and then he'd really look and investigate that in his own mind. And it was such an alive process. And it's this posture of inquiry. It's this willingness to learn, this willingness to have an open heart that isn't saying, I know the way things are, but is looking to be with life, looking to touch into the deepest truths of life. And I just want to say that even though both of these people that I have mentioned are monastics, I'm not in any way saying that if we bring this Dhamma inquiry into the center of our lives, that's what will happen for us. Because I don't see it as being about that. What it is is about having that mind that is open, questioning, listening. And what I could see is that both of these people, it didn't matter whether it was something that was difficult to face, something that was challenging, something that was inspiring. It's whatever the experience is in life, learning how to be with this, learning how we can recognize when we're caught on the conceptual level of understanding, learning how we can soften, let go, be with, become intimate with life, and let life flow through us. Letting the truth unfold, allowing. And this is whether we sit on the cushion, whether we have a really precise attention with our experience, or whether 
we step out into the midst of a busy street and experience complete chaos around us. It's finding that way in that moment to stay in alignment with truth. Which brings honesty, inclusiveness, acceptance. Whatever is there, however things are unfolding, It's about bringing this quality of attention, awareness. This is supported through the quality of investigation, interest. The quality of investigation is not the analytical investigation, the thinking about, the figuring out about, but it's the arousing of energy to simply see. This quality of investigation works very much in the same way that lightning works. That when lightning happens, it simply illuminates what is there. And this quality of investigation allows us to see the way of things, the natural lawfulness. And we don't need another situation. We don't need another experience. The Dhamma is unfolding in every moment. We simply need the eyes to see. Yesterday morning, James spoke about there being two levels, the relative or conventional level of experience. This is the level where there's a uniqueness to this karmic lump, this meotion. (laughs) There's a uniqueness to your karmic lump. We often refer to it as me. This is me. There's a convention that's here. There's a useful convention. It wouldn't be so helpful if I walked around mistaking myself to be you. You know, that there's something that's quite useful in it. The world operates with, within a level of convention. But there's also this level of the absolute, the level where there is the knowing of the impersonality, that even though this is known and often identified in, on a conceptual level as being me, there's nothing that belongs to me. There's no central piece that I can claim to be I, me, or mine. This is constantly in flux, changing. When we touch into the level of the absolute, 
we really come to know the freedom that comes from non-grasping, from not taking things to be I, me, or mine. And our life becomes a play of working with these two truths. There's a richness where when we learn to live with this respect, this care, this honoring of the relative level, where we see that what we do, what we say, has consequences. We see the law of karma. We see that we're not not living in a void, but we're living deeply connected with life. When we learn to honor that, but to hold it with this wisdom that sees into the emptiness, not emptiness as being void, but empty of this grasping, this self-identification, clinging, that when we're caught in is so painful. So we find our life can be this play of touching into with you know, full energy this life, bringing forth to what we do, how we sit, how we practice, how we live, this care and respect, doing the best that we can and letting it go, letting it be. It's a remarkable experience. (laughs) I'd like to share a poem from a Native American elder. It's called Lost. Stand still. The trees ahead and bushes beside you are not lost. Wherever you are is called here, and you must treat it as a powerful stranger and must ask permission to know it and be known. The forest breathes. Listen. It answers. I have made this place around you. If you leave it, you may come back again, saying here, No two trees are the same to the raven. No two branches are the same to the wren. If what a tree or bush does is lost on you, you are surely lost. Stand still. The forest knows where you are. You must let it find you. That poem somehow speaks to me about that openness of heart that isn't imposing ideas, concepts, beliefs, but is letting life reveal itself, letting truth reveal itself. It speaks to me of this quality of receptivity, acceptance. And yet, there is a part that we play 
having to turn on this light, having to turn up for life. And to me, it has been key, this quality of investigation and allowing it to be just that simple interest, an interest that is not demanding, that is not trying to prove itself, but an interest that simply listens, looks, feels. Over the last years, some of my teachers have drilled into me something that helps me to look towards an openness of heart. Because, you know, it's not always that that's what's there. But looking towards just being with experience without thinking that I know. They have drilled into me the danger of thinking that we know. And how... Just recently hearing His Holiness the Dalai Lama speak, and he was saying, talking about how that as practitioners we can harden through the teachings. And this happens when we think we know. And this is dangerous. Something we need to pay attention to, watch for. Because the very thing that has been so dear to us, that we love so deeply, if we start to simply believe something, it will keep us from knowing, understanding. And yet there certainly is ways that we hear the teachings that point the minds towards that truth. You know, I had one teacher, and I don't think he's the only teacher that did it, but often talked about how he was the finger pointing to the moon and don't get hung up on the finger. And these teachings that we hear, they're meant to guide us, meant to point the mind towards truth, but not to get caught in an understanding that is not deeply felt, known. can happen that even though we often in our lives have this deep desire to turn our minds towards truth, that we fall into complacency, we become bored. What's important in these moments is to recognize that it's not because the experience isn't glossy, isn't rich. 
it's because our quality of attention is not fully present. We're not wholeheartedly engaged. And, you know, in those moments where there's this recognition of boredom, let it be a signal to turn on the light again. It's just interest. Become interested. Look and see. And, you know, this is for me what, in all the times that I get caught tight, contracted, that willingness to look. It doesn't matter that looking is what's important. That being with, touching, As we turn on the lights, as we work with this quality of investigation, if it's to be true investigation, it's supported by trust. There's not a fighting with experience. It's not done out of fear. Trust in itself is to rely on without fear or misgiving. There is something that I've done in my own life which helped, at the time, really helped me to get in touch with the quality of trust and I think can be a helpful image of what trust feels like. Because sometimes we have been so fearful, contracted, tight, we actually can't even get a sense of what trust feels like. But this, for me, happened at a time when uh, I had a lot of struggle in my life. I had been sick for a long time and was really on a journey of healing. And at this time, I lived by the ocean. I lived by a warm ocean. Because <laughs> if it's, this image doesn't quite work if you think of it jumping into a really cold ocean. <laughs> But what I used to do every day was go into the ocean and lay on my back and lay there until I felt myself being held. And so it was a warm ocean. And, you know, this wasn't on the days when it was really stirred up, but on, you know, these days when it was quieter. And just laying there and allowing this feeling to come through, allowing the heart to relax. And it was, you know, for me in a dark time, a way of letting a ray of light in, being able to feel this relaxation of heart, which is so important to come in contact with. Because the, the mind that is tight, contracted, doesn't know of letting go, doesn't know of this relaxation, doesn't know of this deep ease. In our life, we practice 
letting go into the Dhamma, letting go into the river of life, letting ourselves be held, not having to try so hard to do, to make, to get, letting go into awareness. I'd like, <clears throat> excuse me, I'd like to share a teaching from Hamid Almas, a teacher who lives on the West Coast, who brings together a synthesis of Eastern philosophy and Western psychology. And so this is something he says about trust. We do not trust that if we relax, we will have the capacities, we will have the intelligence, we will have the strength, and we will have the compassion that we need to deal with our lives. We do not trust that reality as it is, is fundamentally fine and will work for us and support us without any interference on our part. Basic trust is learning that life is manageable, is workable, that we can relax into it and just let it be. It is that trust that the universe itself supports us and that we have the inner resources to deal with whatever life presents us. Basic trust means trusting enough to let your mind stop, to be silent within. Trust to let yourself be silent within. Knowing this, if there is something you need to know, the knowing will come. It means trusting that if you need to do something, you will be able to do it. It means accepting and trusting the silence, the stillness, the beingness. If we don't trust, we can't let our minds be silent and we can't let ourselves be still. Within this posture of Dhamma inquiry, we bring in this quality of trust or allow this quality of trust. It it supports the investigation. Trusting in this process Trusting in the journey, the unfolding. In this life of Dhamma inquiry, it is a way in which when challenges arise in our life, questions, things we don't understand. It can allow us to be there, to keep looking, to let the mind probe, feel, become intimate with this configuration. The other night, 
James talked about working in this way with something that arose in his own life when he described how for a number of years he was grappling with questions around words that often got translated and could um, be held in a hardened way. Uh, you know, languaging that might lead the mind into aversion. And to me, when I heard him talk about it, it was like, you know, finding that place where you're grading up against life, and then you keep looking. You know, hearing something in the teachings, you don't have to run away from it. But it's like bringing it closer, looking more. And sometimes this process takes years. There's something that we're out of sorts with. Can we allow it to be there? Because as you may have heard in James' story, it opened up something not just for him, but for us. We reap the benefit of his questioning. When I was putting together this talk, it was again this sense of just bringing something and looking, inquiring, you know, what's this about? You know, oh, feeling it, giving birth to it. <laughs> you know, it, it's, it's how we can live our lives with that intimacy and openness of mind. This is from Tony Packer who was, you know, for many years a Zen practitioner, and she actually has a a retreat center in Springwater. She says in her book, The Wonder of Presence, The essence of meditative inquiry is not obtaining answers, but wondering patiently without knowing. We may have heard spiritual teachers say, the answer is in the question, I used to hear Krishnamurti say it time and time again, but in the beginning I didn't understand what he meant. You cannot understand it by trying to figure it out. It has to reveal itself clearly in the questioning itself, when it is open and innocent. She calls this a wearing without knowing. my mind really goes into awe and wonder when I realize that everything around me, in me, coming through me, is a teacher. There is nothing that can't deepen wisdom other than to shut our eyes, not meaning shut our eyes and sitting in Vipassana, <laughs> but to, to turn away, to go unconscious. I'd like to share a poem from Roger Keyes. It's called Hokusai Says. Hokusai says, look carefully. He says, pay attention, notice, 
He says, keep looking, stay curious. He says, there is no end to seeing. He says, look forward to getting old. He says, keep changing. You just get more who you really are. He says, get stuck, accept it. Repeat yourself as long as it's interesting. He says, keep doing what you love. He says, keep praying. He says, every one of us is a child. Every one of us is ancient. Every one of us has a body. He says, every one of us is frightened. He says, every one of us has to find a way to live with fear. He says, everything is alive. Shells, buildings, people, fish, mountains, trees. Wood is alive. Water is alive. Everything has its own life. Everything lives inside us. He says, live with the world inside you. He says, it doesn't matter if you draw or write books. It doesn't matter if you saw wood or catch fish. It doesn't matter if you sit at home and stare at the ants on your veranda or the shadows of the trees and grasses in your garden. It matters that you care. It matters that you feel. It matters that you notice. It matters that life lives through you. Contentment is life living through you. Joy is life living through you. Satisfaction and strength is life living through you. Peace is life living through you. He says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Look, feel. Let life take you by the hand. Let life live through you. Letting life live through us. This is the training of our practice. This is what happens as we learn how to be present. Present with a non-interfering awareness. Learning to see our patterns of getting caught, getting stuck identifying, recognizing, accepting, investigating, and relaxing. A process that, you know, sometimes in the living of, we might feel like we're living in a tumble dryer, going round and round, battered and battered. And within that process, we can simply keep turning our minds towards truth, towards the way of things, looking deeply into this experience to know it in a non-conceptual way.
I'd like to share a teaching from a woman named Upasaka Ki Nanayan. She has a book called Pure and Simple, and it has some really pithy lines in it. This is one of her teachings. She's a Thai woman. For the mind to gain genuine understanding, it has to keep investigating your every activity with every breath. It will then be equal to the task of stopping your preoccupations and your, your continual tendency to fabricate worthless ideas under the force of delusion. When you're not really determined, your practice becomes half-hearted and ends up scattered, a waste of valuable time. So look inside yourself and keep on looking until you see clearly. Actually, once you're adept, it's more fun to look inside than out. Outside there's nothing to see but things passing away, passing away. What's so enthralling about that? But the inner eye can penetrate to the clear light within and then to the truth of the Dhamma. Once we see the nature of the passing away of all fabricated things, we'll gain new insight into the nature that doesn't pass away, a nature that can't change but simply is. Letting it be simple. Letting it be felt, a felt sense. Not pushing or forcing. Having patience with our entanglements. Now it's said that the road to Nibbana is paved with patience. Patience helps us to have a kindness in our heart when we don't understand, when we are confused. Patience has a forbearance in it that can keep opening to the bigger picture, that can stand steady when it's uncomfortable, unknown, unfamiliar can stand steady when there's fear, anxiety. It's a kindness of heart at these times when patience is present. This is another teaching from Upasaka Ki Nanyan. She says, the first requirement when you come to practice is that you need to be the sort of person who loves the truth. And you need to possess endurance to do what's true. Only then will your practice get anywhere. Otherwise, it all turns into failure and you go back to being a slave to your defilements and cravings just as before. But when we keep this love of truth in the center of our lives. There is no mistakes. There is nothing wrong. 
there is always an opportunity that is here and now. In my own life, I find a deepening sense of devotion. And I know that devotion is something that many of us uh, may not resonate with, may feel that devotion comes um, from a sense of giving oneself over to a guru, a teacher, uh, and you know that's not anything we're anywhere near doing or want to do. But for me, the quality of devotion that's really come through is this quality of devoting oneself to truth and doing it with a wholehearted engagement. And this brings juice to the path. This brings joy to the path. It becomes a lubricant in the times when it's tough, when it's hard. Suzuki Roshi once said, moment after moment, completely devote yourself to listening to your inner voice. And there was a time in my own life where you know, maybe I felt a little burned by teachers, a little fried, and you know, guarded in a sense. But still I could bring in this quality of devotion. When I looked at it by way of what Suzuki Roshi is pointing to, looking to our inner voice, inner wisdom, allowing a spaciousness for that to be heard, and devoting our lives to this. And this leads us right into bodhicitta, which I was talking about this morning in the morning reflection. You know, the practice of practicing not for ourselves alone, but practicing to awaken so that we can help all beings. And this is compassion, you know, whether it's on the relative level, where in our lives we work with the greatest wisdom we can call forth for the benefit of all beings. And through this deep inquiry that we do in our lives, the full realization of this is the awakened mind. I'd like to close tonight with a teaching from Lama Zopa, a Tibetan teacher. He says, the heart of living is compassion. Compassion pursues you to develop wisdom and eventually ultimate nature and can be cultivated by each individual. It leads to happiness for all beings, touched by one's compassion, and it can be transmitted to all beings. In this way, we are responsible for the happiness of all sentient beings and their enlightenment. When we don't practice compassion, numberless beings suffer by its absence. That's the danger of not practicing and the urgency to practice. We can't delay. We can't wait or idle our time away because compassion is essential.
So living a life of Dhamma inquiry. The bedrock of that can be this practice of bodhicitta, where we practice not with a sense of isolation, not with a sense of a small separate I, but where we practice with an engagement of the heart that brings us close to a life that has no separation, no grasping, no clinging, and is an expression of the deepest wisdom. So let's just sit for a moment. May all of the wholesome energy of our practice be joined with all of the wholesome energies of the three times, the past, the present, and the future. And may this be dedicated to the welfare and liberation of all beings in all realms of existence.
So closing tonight with the chanting of sharing of blessings. Now let us chant the verses of sharing and aspiration. Through the goodness that arises from my practice, may my spiritual teachers and guides of great virtue, my mother, my father, and my relatives, the sun and the moon, and all virtuous leaders of the world, May the highest gods and evil forces, celestial beings, guardian spirits of the earth, and the Lord of death, may those who are friendly, indifferent or hostile, may all beings receive the blessings of my life. May they soon attain the threefold bliss and realize the deathless through the goodness that arises from my practice and through this act of sharing. May all desires and attachments quickly cease, and all harmful states of mind, until I realize Nirvana in every kind of birth. May I have an upright mind with mindfulness and wisdom, Austerity and vigor, may the forces of delusion not take hold, nor weaken my resolve. The Buddha is my excellent refuge, unsurpassed is the protection of the Dhamma. The solitary Buddha 